If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy— Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so uh, we have come to the end of our sermon series, Killing What's Killing You. Now, we've heard a, great, a ton of great feedback from people about how helpful it has been to spend specific and directed time thinking about, talking about these seven sins, um, worry, lust, greed, envy, bitterness, guilt, and now pride. And chose to focus on these because uh, they are like we call besetting sins. These are things that can uh, often sort of... Um, uh, jump up and sort of we feel we get entangled in them. We know that the scripture tells us that Jesus Christ has defeated our enemies of Satan's sin and death, but let's be honest. Sometimes it's hard to walk in the freedom that Christ has won for us, and we need to be reminded. Uh, Colossians 3 uses the phrase put to death when it talks about sin and sin, uh, simple activity, and that sounds violent for sure, but it underscores the intensity of the fight and what's at stake. This is a life and death issue. As John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So today we will tackle the final topic, pride. But what do we mean by pride? In the very least, uh, pride is a misconception about our own weightiness. Now, an easy way to say that might be overestimating our importance, but it's, that's just a small part of it. Pride manifests in more than just thinking that we're better than other people. Uh, it also includes overestimating our abilities. So if you're a parent, you've probably heard something like this. My three-year-old used to say, Maya, do it own self. <laughs> okay, but you know, you can't actually tie your shoes or unbuckle your seatbelt. You don't know how to do any of that stuff. I want to do it. Fine. Now, there's also in the culture this rampant sense of entitlement. I deserve it. Give it to me. But don't be mistaken. Pride doesn't end there. Pride is the reason we trust ourselves more than we trust God. I mean, am I really more trustworthy than God? I sure think so. It undergirds our insecurities. What about the belief that my problems are worse than everyone else's? That I'm too broken for God to fix me? Are, are you really so weighty, so substantive that God can't reach you, that God can't help you? In this way, pride can motivate thinking too highly or too lowly of ourselves. So why do we even care about pride? I mean, come on. 
We live in a self-promoting, self-aggrandizing culture, a culture of confidence. I'm proud to be an American. (laughs) Manifest destiny, baby. I mean, we're Americans. We got swagger everywhere, bravado everywhere you look. In our music, DJ Khaled, we the best music. Every song on the album starts with that. Every song. Swagger in our athletes. Muhammad Ali, I'm the greatest. Superman don't need no seatbelt. Superman doesn't need an airplane, Mr. Ali. Swagger in our politicians. Swagger in our fast food. Have you seen an Arby's commercial in the last two years? We have the meats. As loud as you can say it. So even if the media can't deliver you the hyped up and amped up swagger and bravado of the culture fast enough, we're going to take a step back. We're going to dial it down. We're going to talk about three things, three problems with pride. Pride is demonic. Pride is deceptive. Pride is detrimental. It's bad for you. If you were asked, what is the earliest recorded instance of pride in the creation? What would it be? Bam. I like that. That's right. Lucifer. Two Old Testament passages teach us about Lucifer and his fall. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Now, Lucifer began as an angel of light. Ezekiel describes him as full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. He describes a being arrayed in gold and precious jewels, a sight to behold. Not only was his outward appearance jaw-dropping, but he had a coveted position of authority and prominence in God's kingdom. The scripture says that he was an anointed guardian cherub on the holy mountain of God. There it is. Anointed guardian of cherub. But Ezekiel goes on to tell us, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So Lucifer is found by God to be harboring pride in his heart. This pride in turn leads to evil ambition. In Isaiah 14, we have these five I will statements. Lucifer says, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the assembly, on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. Satan, consumed by his own magnificence, becomes haughty and proud. He says, he he starts to reach for or grasp for something that is not his, for the position that God alone holds. His position of honor and authority then is stripped from him and he is cast down because he tries to, he attempts a coup. He tries to overthrow God. But God in his sovereignty says, you are a created being. You are profane. You have ruined yourself. See, Satan was no longer content to be a worshiper, but he wanted to become the object of worship. He coveted, treasonously coveted God's position of honor. And this led to enmity and rebellion. So pride is demonic. Why? Because Lucifer, now Satan, 
is the first instance of pride, introduces pride into creation. But pride is also deceptive. You see, a poor understanding of God and ourselves is fertile ground for pride to do its work and to produce its fruit. We see this in Lucifer's fall. Right? He's overwhelmed with his own magnificence. He doesn't see himself rightly. We see it in humanity as well. And let's face it, the parallels aren't coincidental. Satan wasn't just sort of hanging out in the garden when he met Eve. No, he was an angry enemy of God, looking for revenge, wanting to rob God of the worship that he wanted for himself. So if we look at Satan and Eve's interaction, I think it's quite telling. Satan begins by questioning God's truth. He says to her, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, no, that's not what God said, but Satan's twisting the words. So Eve says, no, actually, God said that we you know, can't eat of this tree, but he actually said we shouldn't even touch it. Well, that's not accurate either. And so Satan sees that Eve doesn't really know what God said or that there's a, there's a vulnerability there, and he exploits it. And he says, oh, you will not surely die. You will become like God, knowing good and evil. And so now the lie has been inserted. The problem is that Eve and her husband Adam, they doubt God's trustworthiness right? They trust instead what they can see with their eyes. The scripture says that they saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. They said, well, God said not to, but mm, looks pretty good to me. And to pursue their own ambition. Oh, it's good for making one wise. I could become like God. I can gain knowledge. I won't need to wait for God to teach me things. And so they too grasp for something that is outside of their realm outside of their appointed position. Now, they had a great position of honor in God's kingdom. God had created all the things and created man as the pinnacle of creation. And he said to them, live in this wonderful garden that I've given you. And in fact, the whole earth is yours. Be fruitful, multiply, fill and subdue it. Sounds pretty good to me. But they weren't content with that. They wanted to be like God. And there you have it. Pride is Lucifer's original sin and pride is ours as well. But our pride has lied to us. You know, their pride told them that they could be more than creatures, that they could become like God. But instead, they ate the fruit and they became unlike God, filled with sin, marred, broken, damaged, the complete opposite of what they thought. So pride is deceptive, but pride is also detrimental. It harms us. Issues of pride, as we have seen, they spring from attempts to grasp for God's position of authority. That could be like Satan, who wants to be equal with God, but it could also be like Adam and Eve, who are trying to gain something apart from God, to be independent of God. It often involves standing in God's place in some way. Maybe that is to determine value. Like we like to judge others. When we do that, we're assigning a value to them. But that's God's job. God is the creator, the artist. He can tell us this is what it is. This is what it's for. This is what it's worth. But when we step in that position, we act as though we are God to assign value. Even when we judge ourselves, we stand in God's position. And we choose to believe what we think over what God has said. 
Now, the obvious consequence of pride is an inflated sense of ourselves, right? Now, this is the guy who loves to humble brag on social media about what he's up to, you know, like, oh man, you know, when I was uh, scoring the winning touchdown, I like tweaked my ankle. Y'all come, come check it out. Oh, really? While you were scoring the game? Okay, game winning score. Okay. Or the guy, person who likes to name drop. Man, you know, last week when I was hanging out with my friends, you know, I, we saw John Legend at the hotel. It was great. Oh, okay, that's cool. But we see this and we immediately can sniff it out. I mean, this is pretty obvious. Someone is trying to insert themselves in the conversation and make themselves the center of the attention. But what about the opposite person? What about the truly insecure person? We've all known people with low self-esteem and they can't stop putting themselves down. They can't stop running for external validation. Is this person free from the effect of pride? Well, maybe but they're still consumed with themselves, with their self-worth, with their fragile ego. Both kinds of people are driven by their broken sense of who they are and what they're worth and their need for validation. Now, there's many other evidences of pride in our lives. I mean, are you easily offended? What does your Twitter feed look like? Has anyone ever accused you of being defensive? But Greg, it's not my fault. Gotcha. Do you struggle to admit your mistakes? I'm sure no one ever here has ever been considered image conscious, right? Are you so worried and desperate to have the, the perfect uh, facade to, to project confidence and success because you don't want people to see the real you on the inside? Are you stuck in the comparison game? Are you quick to speak and slow to listen? Clearly, these challenges, they leave us separated from one another. Emotionally isolated and relationally hindered. What do all these harmful behaviors have in common? They're driven by either an over or an underinflated sense of who we are. That's what I want to shed light on today. That's what I believe God's word can free us from today. This is the plight of our ego, that insatiable desire for validation. We may not be looking to prove that we're better than others, like we classically think about pride, but there is an incessant drive to fill ourselves with something that can answer the question, am I worthy? Am I lovely? Every kind of evil has been perpetrated and condoned in the search for, to satisfy the human ego, but only one thing can satisfy your ego and it ain't stuff. What can satisfy the ego is the wrong question. Who can satisfy the ego is the question we must ask. God has put those questions, am I worthy, am I lovely, in your heart, and only God can answer them. Now, some incorrectly believe that Christianity's response to pride is tear yourself down, right? If I focus on my sin, my mistakes, my weaknesses, you know, then I can keep myself humble. The good news, friends, is that strategy is nowhere to be found in the scripture. We can stop beating ourselves up. We can leave our attempts at self-flagellation at the door. Believe me, I tried this for years. It didn't make me less proud. It just made me falsely proud. You see, constantly reminding myself of how terrible a sinner I was, of all the mistakes that I was making, about how bad it was that I kept doing it over and over again. Well, 
this just made it hard for me to accept God's grace. I began to believe that somehow my sins were worse than other people's sins. Or, or, or that, you know, it's okay that other people make mistakes and they need grace, but man, I should know better. You know, I was a leader. I, I, I had a position of authority. You know, I, I, I've been a Christian for so long. I should be over this by now. I believe not just that I was better, but that I should be better. And not just better than I was as if I was growing, but better than other people. Because grace is okay for them, but it's not okay for me. No, that is not the path to freedom from pride. Instead, the Bible provides us a completely different path. So we're going to talk about this text in Philippians. Uh, Starting in verse 3, it says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. (laughs) Sounds hard. Have this mind among yourselves. And this is the key. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Okay, so Jesus humbles himself. His humility is self-inflicted, but how did he do it? Did Jesus spend his time considering how bad he was? No, he was perfect. The perfect man, the perfect savior, the perfect messenger, the perfect lamb. So how does perfection personified humble himself? You see, Paul's solution to conquering our pride does not begin with something that we do. It begins with something that we believe. He says, have this mind. The battlefield against pride begins in our mind. Let's consider Jesus. The text says that he was in the form of God. Jesus knew that he was God. He existed eternally with God the Father. And then he took off that form and put on a human form. But the interesting thing about Jesus is that throughout his entire life, he never succumbs to pride or ego. You see, because he knows who he is and he knows that his position and his identity cannot be challenged, he is secure. He is able to avoid falling victim to the temptations of ego in his life. For instance, when Jesus is in the desert and he's tempted by Satan, Satan says to him, he says, you know, if you're really the son of God, prove it to me. You know, do this miracle. What does Jesus, does Jesus fall for that? No, he doesn't. He doesn't have to prove himself. He says, I'm the son of God, man. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, he's like, Psh. man doesn't live by bread alone. Psh. I ain't worried about you. Shake it off. Right? When the religious leaders falsely accuse him before Pilate, does he rush to defend himself? Oh, wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. My record is like this. No, he doesn't. When they mock him on the cross, they say, look at him. He saved others. Let him save himself. Did he come off the the cross and be like, boom, boom, angels, miracles, power? No, he said, I ain't worried about y'all. I got work to do. I know my identity. Even in the heat of being turned into sin and the father turning his face away, Jesus Christ knew the promise that through suffering comes glory. Thank God 
that he wasn't so easily riled up. Because if he had come off the cross, where would we be? We too must begin with an accurate assessment of our identity. But this is hard, right? Because we've spent decades believing lies. Lies about our value, lies about our worth, lies about how to achieve value or prove it. The culture tells us, you know, your value comes from what you do, what you achieve. For some of us, we are validated by our resumes, but others of us are devastated by them. Some of us believe that a relationship could bring us value. Maybe it's your race, it's your family, it's your citizenship, your political views. Maybe it's the profession you hold or the influence you wield, the wealth that you've accumulated or the neighborhood that you live in. All of these sources of value challenge God's truth. They promise to answer the question, am I worthy? Am I lovely? They promise to satisfy you, but they are lying to you. God's word says this. We are all in the same boat. God is not a respecter of persons. We were all created in his image to show his glory. And we have all sinned and fall short of it. We were the pinnacle of God's creation until sin entered the picture. But now we're infected by sin. All are dead in their trespasses. All are enemies of God. All are children of wrath. But if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. It says that your old identity as a ruined sinner is gone and you have a new identity as a beloved child of God. That's what we sang, right? No longer slaves to sin, but now a child of God. Now, think about the identity that the world offers you. You know, secular humanists, they want you to believe that you're like a cosmic accident, an accumulation of lots of random events. Okay. Maybe at best, you're the top of the biological food chain. That's kind of depressing. No wonder we're grasping for more, reaching, trying to, trying to add something to ourselves or prove our value. Well, maybe you're like William Ernest Henley says, that you're the master of your fate and the captain of your soul. Well, that sounds better. You know, I could get into that. Until the storms of life come and shake that ship and then I don't feel like captain them very much. So of course I'm reaching and I'm grasping for something more solid. Listen, these identities and any other identity that you can construct for yourself is dwarfed by what God has to say about you. To him, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. In Jesus Christ, we are washed, cleansed, redeemed. We are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. We are his holy church, a temple for his Holy Spirit to dwell in. We were made to, to complete good works, to show forth his glory. We've all been given gifts. No part of the body can say to another, I have no need of you. Whether you are rich in this life or poor in this life, respected or forgotten, the gospel speaks to you. If you're rich and you're influential, you must recognize that you are like a helpless baby but you're in the arms of a loving father. If you've been forgotten, if you're marginalized, if you're insecure, you must know that God has said that I have elevated you to a position to rule and reign with my son forever. Either way, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, 
God has given you, has offered you a wonderful new identity in Jesus Christ. A Christian who has become fully convinced of his or her immutable position before God, fully righteous, standing in God's place of honor, receiving infinite grace from the Father. That is a dangerous person. When I played sports, we used to always say the team on the field that has nothing to lose, that's the dangerous team. That's the team you have to be worried about. A Christian with an unassailable promise from God that nothing that he has given could ever be taken away, that is a dangerous person. Jesus Christ lived a dangerous kind of life, a reckless life, because he knew his position was secure. He was able to go to the lowest depth for us. What God has to say about us, what the identity that he gives can quiet the raging storm of our ego and satisfy the insatiable longing for validation. Both the highly regarded person and the lowly regarded person have the same task. We must tune out the messages that we receive from society. The world's system of evaluation is too flawed and it's working with a rigged standard. Only God can give you the truth about your identity and your worth. But how do we rewire something that's so foundational? I mean, decades we've spent thinking the way we're thinking, Greg. What, what am I supposed to do with this? The scripture tells us, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if believing what I've told you is hard, you have to saturate yourself with God's word. You must submit to its authority in your life. You must repeatedly apply it to your ego wound like salve, like a medicine. Now, my wife related an illustrative anecdote, and she gave me permission to share it with you. She, like everyone else, you know, we all have these mistakes that we constantly make, and we give ourselves a hard time because like, oh, I should have figured this out by now. And so she was late getting the kids to school. She said, oh, I'm a terrible mother, as she pushed them all into the car and drove away. Well, you know, later in the day, this came back to her because my son asked for a treat, and it's not treat time, and he said no, and he said, you're a terrible mother. Ooh, burn, right? So to hear this from your child is heartbreaking, but to know that it is the lie that you taught him to speak back to you, well, that's devastating. Now, I say this for two reasons. The first is my wife is an excellent mother. I mean, I wonder, I just can't say enough effusive things about how great my wife is and how much I admire her in her role as mom. But the second thing is, it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I tell all of you wonderful people. She will not experience God's deliverance and God's power in her life until she starts to believe what God says about her. She has to remove the lie that she is used to telling herself and put in its place God's truth. So read your Bible. Oh, Greg, that's so basic. Yeah, I know. <laughs> read your Bible. Are you feeling like a terrible failure in life? Romans says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. You want to escape your old mistakes? Galatians says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but the life I now live. I live in the flesh by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Are you feeling like you deserve something more? Ephesians says, it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. It is not your own doing not by works. It is the gift of God. Are you tempted to feel proud of your accomplishments? 
The scripture says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Does God, does God really care about me? Colossians says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear in glory. Your future is secure. Take God at his word. His word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Now, regard to, the, to what to do, right? We start to fight the battle, start to win the battle in the mind. Verse 6 tells us that though he was in the form of God, that is Jesus, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. So although Jesus had a divine existence, made of the same stuff that God is made of, he was able to take it off and put on the lowly position, right? Now, if putting on a flesh suit wasn't bad enough, he then went to the cross and died the death of a slave and a criminal. Now, herein lies the difference between Jesus and Lucifer. Jesus had equality with God, but he did not grasp it. He gave it up. Lucifer, on the hand, was reaching for something that was not his own. The difference between Jesus and the first Adam Adam is reaching for the fruit to become like God. Jesus already was God. And he didn't use his position of being God for his own benefit. He gave it up for our benefit. But how was Jesus able to do this? Andrew Murray, in his Christian devotional classic, Humility, he ponders this question. He says, how can I count others better than myself? if I see that they are far below me in wisdom, holiness, natural ability, or spiritual gifts? Well, that's the question now, isn't it? Jesus was able to do it. We didn't deserve his help. We didn't deserve his sacrifice, but he willingly gave it. Why? The passage says because of obedience. You see, Jesus didn't come to save us because we asked him to. He wasn't responding to our entitlement like, oh, well, I deserve someone to save me, Jesus. Come on down here and do it. He's responding to God's call. Jesus looks to God and says, Father, I submit myself to you. I'm obedient to you. And so Jesus understands that cleansing lepers, exercising demons, and washing the disciples' feet, these are all done for people secondarily. His true service is to God, the Father. That's why obedience is so prominent in the passage. But like John the Baptist, after beholding God, after seeing Jesus, we can say, I must decrease, he must increase. For us, this means we don't look at another person and consider their goodness as a basis for our service. We don't humble ourselves because they deserve it. Our humility does not happen in person-to-person comparisons. Oh, are they good enough? Yeah, I guess I'll help them. No, the Christian embraces, dare I say, celebrates a life of service because that's what we have already received in Jesus Christ. We look to God the Father and then we answer his call. His call is... Whoever has given a drink of water to the least of these has done it for me. Whoever receives one child such as this receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Love your neighbor as yourself. This obedience to God first and foremost is the second key to experiencing humility. So to recap, first, we must acknowledge that God the creator has the final say about our identity. He has bestowed value on us in the creation and in our redemption and eventually in our glorification. Second, he doesn't just save us from the corruption of sin. He has spoken an unshakable and liberating truth over us. 
one that satisfies our ego, that, that calms the storm, raging storm of validation. We are his beloved creation, his adopted sons, co-heirs with Christ the righteous. Third, our secure position of value before God frees us from chasing after things that will bring us value so that we can then pour ourselves out and serve. You see, practically, this means that we are free to love people regardless of their status, regardless of our status. They don't need to deserve it. They never will deserve it. Deserve is a fallacy. When we serve others, we don't lose anything. There's no fear in our position. Giving up a position, being forgotten, being overlooked, that doesn't challenge what God has given you. It doesn't threaten what God has done for you. In fact, when we give, people aren't even taking from us, really, because we're giving them God's grace, which he's poured out on us. We have an infinite storehouse of grace we can tap into and we can pour ourselves out and empty ourselves. Every person becomes an opportunity for God's humility, for Christ's humility to be displayed. More specifically, you know, I think about our J Friends ministry, that's a perfect example of this. We are embracing and integrating children and adults with special needs, bring them into our community when they maybe have been forgotten or they feel like they're on the outside of society. We are embodying the heart of Jesus. But that's not it. There's the next initiative and the adoption fund and fostering children, bringing them into our lives. We're befriending international students and refugees with Oasis International and the campus ministries. You know, whether we're working with people who are incarcerated out at the lake, you know, people who are overcoming addiction, we are welcoming every person from the CEO to the mailman to the homeless person, every person who would want to come and sit at the feet of Jesus to be washed and to be cleansed. And the great news is it doesn't matter what position you're in. Even if you feel like the world has said you have no value, you have nothing to give, you forfeited your chance. God says, I have put my spirit in you. And with my spirit comes life, comes power, comes gifts. The eye cannot say to the ear, I have no need of you. Every part, even the, as the scripture says, um, uh, so the dishonorable parts are worthy of more honor. So every person, has a new identity in Christ. And every person can answer the call to serve others, not on the basis of their virtue, but on the basis of God's virtue. Let's pray.